From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Hollywood on strike. Last week, the actors joined the screenwriters on the picket lines outside film and TV studios in L.A. and New York. The writers have been out already for 75 days. Josh Gondelman will comment. But first, the war on black studies. Robin Kelly will explain in a minute. When Russian President Vladimir Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine in 2022, it marked his latest attempt to brutally conquer the country and reshape the world order. Christopher Miller, the Ukraine correspondent for the Financial Times and the foremost journalist covering the country, was there on the ground when the first Russian missiles struck and troops stormed over the border. In his new book, The War Came to Us, Miller combines his personal experiences of over a decade reporting in Ukraine with vivid frontline dispatches and illuminating interviews with unforgettable characters to create a breathtaking exploration of Ukraine's past, present, and future in a heartbreaking account of the war against Russia. The War Came to Us is available now from Bloomsbury Continuum. Order your copy wherever books are sold. Remember how the state of Florida banned the African-American studies curriculum proposed by the college board on the grounds that it might cause guilt, anguish, or other forms of psychological distress in students? Remember how the college board bowed to political pressure and abandoned much of that proposed course? Now, teachers, scholars, and activists have been fighting back, and the college board has announced plans to revise that curriculum yet again. For that story, we turn to Robin D.G. Kelly. He's Gary B. Nash, professor of U.S. history at UCLA, and the author of many books, including Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, and Thelonious Monk, The Life and Times of an American Original. He's written for the New York Times, the Boston Review, and The Nation. And his new article, The Long War on Black Studies, appears in the New York Review. And his new book, co-edited by Colin Kampernick and Kianga Yamada-Taylor is Our History Has Always Been Contraband in Defense of Black Studies. One more thing, <laughs> his work has been singled out for attack by the state of Florida. Robin Kelly, welcome back. It's always great to be with you, John. <laughs> well, let's start with feeling guilt and anguish over the history of slavery. I guess Florida officials want students to feel good about the American past including slavery. That's not easy for black students, but somehow Florida seems more concerned about the feelings of, well, shall we say other students? Exactly. Why would anyone, irrespective of your generation, your race, your ethnicity, actually want to be proud about, you know, the legacy of slavery? And obviously these Republicans are running around um, trying to distance themselves from the history of slavery, Josh Hawley put out that tweet a couple of days ago where he said, America is a Christian nation. America is where slavery went to die. <laughs> you know, and of course, we, so the fact that they're making the, the same argument that says we don't want to discuss racism, slavery, anything that would cause discomfort, they're making the same argument that America is the uh, leading nation in terms of abolition. So it's a, a whole bunch of contradictions. And one other thing, you know, you and I, we've been teaching uh, so-called white students for 40 years, right? And I have yet to actually have a student in my class saying, you know what, this stuff about slavery is making me embarrassed and I feel hurt and pain. In fact, they want to know more. 
because they actually can disassociate themselves from it. And they may be recipients of generational wealth, but that's a different question altogether. Um, in fact, the more they know, like James Baldwin said, you know, you, you can't know uh, your history unless you know mine. And that's that's the truth. That Florida law, Ron DeSantis named it the Stop Woke Act, prohibits teachers from teaching that anyone is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive solely by virtue of his or her race or sex, close quote. Does anybody believe that some races are inherently inferior and that one race is superior? Of course. <laughs> we call it white supremacy. <laughs> we call it racism. I mean, that's the, that's the amazing thing. It's like Freud would have a trip thinking about the way in which this language is, is, is written because it's kind of a confession of everything uh, that racism as an ideology does and projected onto anti-racist scholarship. And let me include here, does anybody believe that gender differences are based on inherent characteristics? Oh, well, <laughs> we all know based on, the, on Christian nationalism that you know God made man and woman. I mean, this is exactly the kind of mythology that has caused what I would argue are genocidal policies in terms of the attack on trans youth, you know, denying them gender affirming care I and mean, making this legal. I mean, denying people's ex right to exist, you know. So unfortunately, this is this is an old struggle. It's a very old argument, and it's quite dangerous. And again, it is a projection of the kind of right wing ideology onto anti racism. And then there's this issue of responsibility. Uh, the Stop Woke Act bans teaching that some people today, quote, bear responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race. As you already mentioned, that's a reference to teaching about reparations exactly. uh, for slavery. Uh, what do you have to say about the issue of responsibility? People who argue for reparations do not claim that all present day white people are responsible for slavery and Jim Crow. Rather, the argument is that, you know, reparations acknowledges that enslavement, land theft, wage theft, housing discrimination, all these things resulted in extracting wealth from some while directly accruing generational wealth to others. So it's a question of generational wealth. If we dig deeper, we're going to find I, and I've made this case uh, 20 years ago, that there are a lot of white people, white working class people who deserve reparations. I mean, you think about, you know, how much health and physical damage to coal miners, for example, and the price that they had to pay in their lives. So it's really a way of understanding ge both generational wealth, but also how capitalism works. All of this takes the form of a debate about the College Board Advanced Placement Curriculum in African-American Studies. Uh, what is the College Board Advanced Placement Curriculum? And maybe we should start with, what is the College Board? <laughs> well, the College Board has a monopoly on both uh, advanced placement courses, on SAT uh, exams, and you know all these exams, you know, college preparation exams, college entrance exams, um, they have a monopoly and they make money off of them. So just AP courses alone for Florida, I think they made some like $35 million 
on, you know, because each each school had to pay for the students to take the AP exam. Um, and so there's that. The other thing is that advanced placement classes, you know, which I think are kind of problematic, though I understand them, they do a couple things. One, it allows you to opt out of the course at the university, whether it's a you know intro to history course or you know English. Um, but the other thing is, and the, the slightly positive thing, although when you look at it in the larger picture, it's not that positive, is that students who may have to pay for credits individually might be able to opt out of those courses and save money. But that's not how universities work. You don't like pay less tuition because you have an AP. <laughs> You pay the same amount. And and that's one of the big mythologies, you know, but it's a money making machine. And the AP curriculum is recommended to high schools for, I guess it's seniors who want to do as high school work, what is really introductory college work. So this is for the, you know, the ambitious and the intellectual elite. And one of our complaints uh, here in California is that a lot of high schools do not offer AP courses or some AP right. courses. And so those students are disadvantaged in their college applications. Absolutely. And you, you have to, in some schools, you have to test into AP courses. You can't just get in because you want to. Um, but more than that, we've had so many students who've taken AP courses who are not prepared. These are still high school level courses. I mean, when you break it down, yeah. it may be a little bit additional reading, but we're doing something different at the university. Uh, and you cannot standardize history teaching because it's such a dynamic process. So I think the whole thing to me should be just abandoned, but that's just me. I just wanna emphasize here, this isn't just part of the DeSantis presidential campaign. More than a dozen other states have followed the example of Florida in uh, criticizing, re- refusing uh, school to give permission to schools to use mm-hmm. the, this curriculum. And it went all the way to the Trump White House. Trump issued an executive order in September 2020. He said his purpose was to root out ideologies that label entire groups of Americans as inherently racist. And Trump suggested banning the keywords white privilege, systematic racism, intersectionality, and unconscious bias. This applied to corporate training in in diversity as well as universities and colleges. Trump was asked about his executive order during the first presidential debate. He said, quote, they were teaching people that our country is a horrible place, a racist place. They were teaching people to hate our country, and I'm not going to allow that to happen. Now, I see that Trump's executive order was rescinded on January 20th, 2023. What happened on January 20th, 2023? <laughs> you have the Biden administration now in power. That's the first day. Plan. All that language, though, Trump is not that smart. Let's admit <laughs> okay. it. Okay. Uh, that language came from Chris Rufo. Chris Rufo uh, works for the Manhattan Institute. He's a He's a national figure who on the right, uh, who is who basically took it upon himself to uh, hijack critical race theory as a new communism. There's, there's something that he says, which is so outrageous. He goes on Twitter in 2021 and says that his plan is to rebrand CRT, to make it toxic, those are his words, uh, to turn it toxic. Um, and then as 
uh, we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. It was a ploy. He admitted it and it's working. And so the language that was written in the 1776 commission, that's Chris Rufo's language. This is Trump's 1776 right. commission. Exactly, exactly. That's And that, that 1776 commission was the project that came out of that executive order. The Florida attack on African-American studies had its new aspects, but the effort to prevent people from learning about the history of slavery and the black freedom struggle is not. Uh, and that's really the subject of your piece in the New York Review. How far back in American history would you say the effort to prevent people from learning about slavery goes? <laughs> well, let's go back to uh, the effort to keep enslaved people from learning to read and write. That's that's sort of a beginning. The, the fact that that was a threat suggests that there's something incendiary about knowledge, knowledge that would challenge the status quo. And, you know, in the book called Our History Has Always Been Contraband, I talk about David Walker's appeal, which was published in 1829. It's, it, it excoriated slavery. It criticized American hypocrisy for being a land of liberty, but still holding slaves. Um, and that that pamphlet was banned. And if you were caught, if you've caught printing it, let alone owning it, uh, you can get to death penalty, basically. You could be hanged, jailed. Uh, and that to me is the highest form of contraband. You know, and it's not an accident that almost all the anti-literacy statutes that were passed in the South, all, they, there's a flood of them between 1829 and 1831 after Nat Turner's rebellion. We know that during the Jim Crow era, there was, you know, mandatory school segregation in the South. What kind of Black history was taught in Black schools in the Jim Crow era? Jarvis Gibbons wrote this great book, which talks about that. This was fugitive history, fugitive uh, knowledge, sometimes in, you know, one-room schoolhouses, uh, sometimes with, over, with principals or superintendents of schools overseeing some of this work, and they'd have to sneak at night. So you'd have teaching of kind of indirectly of Black history inside these schools, all Black schools. But you'd also have the tradition of midnight schools. That is to say, like during Reconstruction and afterward, like during slavery, you had schools in the woods, you know, schools in the fields after midnight where they would talk and discuss and learn how to read and write, um, adults as well as children. You know, so it was a very dangerous thing just reading and writing. And though we always think about it in terms of the Bible, there's a lot of other forms of knowledge that people were seeking. So the underlying question in all of this is who's afraid of Black studies? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I give a long list. <laughs> Certainly um, anyone who is afraid of dealing with the, the crimes that have built the country and there's a litany of crimes, crimes of dispossession of native lands, the crime of slavery itself, um, the fact that there's never been any kind of repair or reparation for that, uh, let alone um, the other kinds of threatening crimes. And that is the possibility of multiracial democracy. That's 
a, considered a crime. The fact that uh, labor organizers building solidarity with white, black, Latinx, Asian workers, they get beat down through state houses and legislatures that pass anti-union laws, right to work laws, and this sort of thing. And then of course, when race doesn't work, they use the C word, communism. Yeah. You know? So these things are really, I mean, Black history, if we do it right, it's global, knows no boundaries, and it is a uh, demand for freedom for all. So where do we stand right now on this latest revision of that college board curriculum in African-American studies? No one knows. Because, it, you know, we're still waiting for the changes. There's been an announcement that there will be changes to the curriculum. As far as I know, um, it hasn't been uh, completed. Uh, I do know that um, the College Board is walking a very fine line between trying to make sure that they keep their, their constituency in, in Florida and Texas and Iowa uh, and make sure that they can, you know, serve the entire country. And finally, tell us about your new book, Our History Has Always Been Contraband. So this is a, a joint effort between uh, Colin Kaepernick's publishing company and Haymarket Books. And it was something that we pulled together, especially Colin was the force behind it. And he uh, brought myself and Kanga Yamada-Taylor to bring this to fruition, to edit this book, which consists of some original essays, some of the band material from the AP curriculum, as well as some key documents that we think are important uh, for Black studies. It's not comprehensive, but it is uh, meant to be a kind of a primer. And what's important here, the most important thing, is that it's being given away for free. Wow. I mean, thousands of copies are going to Florida just to give to students. Um, you can get a free, you can get a free um, ebook. You know, they just give, we're just giving away. Uh, so that's really important as a way to flood and challenge the, the status quo on this question of Black history. And what was it like to work with your co-editor, Colin Kaepernick? The dude is brilliant. I mean, <laughs> if, he, if, he never, if he never goes back and plays football, he, he is a young scholar, you know, and very deeply committed. Um, and so I really appreciated the work that he did. And by the way, he does his work. And we all worked together. We all kind of came to consensus. I spent time with him at the book launch at, in Seattle, at Town Hall. We had a wonderful conversation um, about what this book is going to do and what comes next. What does come next? Well, as he put it, there, there's a three-step three -step plan. Knowledge, number one. Strategy, number two. And action. We can't just talk about it and write about it. We need to fight for control of our schools, fight for control of our state houses, and stop this, you know, right-wing, white Christian nationalist war on truth and knowledge and, and free thought. Robin Kelly, his article, The Long War on Black Studies, appears in the New York Review. Robin, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking <laughs> thanks, with us John. today. Appreciate it. Hollywood is on strike. 
For the first time since 1960, the actors and the screenwriters are striking at the same time. 160,000 actors, 11,500 writers. For comment, we turn again to Josh Gondelman. He's a member of the Writers Guild of America and an Emmy award-winning TV writer, also a comedian. He recently worked as head writer and an executive producer for Desus and Miro on Showtime, where the guests included Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama. He also contributed to the final season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And before that, he spent five years on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, where he earned four Emmys, two Peabody Awards, and three WGA Awards. And he's a regular on the NPR news quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which has a weekly audience of six million people. We reached him today in New York City. Josh Gondelman, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. Nice to see you. Nice to speak with you. The Screen Actors Guild went on strike last Thursday. How long have you and the screenwriters been out on the picket lines? So we've been out for, this is either day 77 or 78 of the strike, which started on May 2nd. I'm also a Screen Actors Guild member. So wow. I'm, I'm now on, on strike doubly. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, well, the issues I understand are pretty much the same for both actors and writers, both sides of your, what shall we say, personality, fair pay in the, <laughs> fair pay in the age of streaming and protection against AI replacing actors and writers with digitally created content. I just read at the CNN website about actors average pay in 2022, $27.33 an hour. Uh, and is that a full-time job being an actor? I mean, I think it's becoming less and, and less in the same way that writing is uh, uh, with the with the advent of streaming. So people who used to be able to make their their year acting by booking one or two pretty meaty roles uh, have had much more trouble. There's you get uh, much less residual compensation for re-airing. You you don't get any extra compensation if something that you're working on is a big hit. It, it's just a much more difficult landscape to make a living as like a, um, you know, just truly like a middle class living is much more difficult to attain. Everyone is concerned about AI. I asked ChatGPT to write a joke about striking actors on the picket lines, and here's what AI came up with. Why did the striking actors on the picket line perform a comedy show? Because they knew the best way to protest was to picket with puntastic punchlines. That's pretty brutal. So <laughs> I, there are a couple of things there. One. I'm not going to offer a punch up for it because that is one of the things that we are asking for in our, you know, in our negotiations is to not be brought in to rewrite AI generated material. <laughs> and then second, it's you, you see how far off this AI feels, right? But you can see in places like GeoMedia where they've been posting AI generated blog posts and the, the quality is so bad on many of them so many inaccuracies and, and they they haven't worked with their writing and editorial team they've just kind of been ramming these through uh you can see that management really is ready to deploy this technology which is largely just plagiarizing even though it's not ready for prime time so it's it's like kind of on two fronts right it right now 
we're fighting because it is lowering the quality of work and devaluing writing work. And then in the future, even if it's better, it is, you know, the better quality, it is still, we're still fighting not to use that tool to put writers out of work. And, and again, actors as well. Chat GPT asked me to rate the joke and I gave mm -hmm. it thumbs down. And then they, <laughs> they asked for more feedback. And the choices I had was, was it harmful? Was it untrue? Mm. Uh, that's their kind of criteria. So in the blank space, I wrote, it wasn't funny and they didn't know what to do about that. So <laughs> I conclude that AI is going to have a hard time replacing comedy writers and comedians. I mean, I mean, I think so. It really, I want to believe that the work that people do has a humanity to it and a creativity to it that can't be replicated by this technology and won't be replicated by this technology. But even above and beyond that, right? Like on top of just a, a fondness for human creativity and an admiration for human creativity, the technology right now is just kind of drawing from and recombining the material it's been trained on. So even if it comes up with something great, it's not coming up with it. It's just kind of a, it's kind of a plagiarism jukebox, right? And maybe it'll get something right, but it's still on the backs of work that humans have created already. A plagiarism jukebox. Exactly. Well, here in LA, our mayor, Karen Bass, called on the studios and unions to quote, work around the clock to reach an equitable agreement. Have the studios been working around the clock to reach an agreement? Speaking as a member of the Writers Guild, we haven't gotten a comprehensive counter proposal from where we were in May. I don't know what the studios are doing, frankly. Well, we do know one thing. The studios have not been meeting with the Writers Guild negotiators for 75 days or yeah. with the Actors Guild negotiators. Yeah. I mean, it certainly feels that they are not working around the clock to get a deal done. They might be doing something around the clock, <laughs> but I, I, it so far has not borne any fruit of a uh, reasonable set of proposals that either union could feel remotely good about. You know, you if you look at the materials the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild have both released, there's just so much daylight in between some pretty reasonable proposals, some some stuff that won't even cost the studios money, and they just say no. So it feels like they have not been making an especially good faith effort to get people back to work. Robert Iger, the head of Disney, told the media last week that the unions, quote, just aren't realistic. Of course, his compensation is totally realistic. How much is he getting now? I think I saw $29 million last year. For That's for one person. And, you know, there, there we've seen some articles citing how much uh, the writers and actors are asking for in total and making that look like a pretty ambitious number. But it, it, you know, it's about what 10 CEOs make total. And we're talking that's spread across 170, 170 something thousand members between the two unions. So it really doesn't feel unrealistic unless they consider it realistic that they would give up even a penny of the profits that we've helped them generate to go back to the workers, you know, that are generating those profits for them. I saw a list of the big productions that have been shut down because of the strike. Mm -hmm. It's another Spider-Man movie, Gladiator 2, 
Deadpool 3, Kung Fu Panda 4, and Mission Impossible 8. What does this tell us about the creative genius of the studio heads? <laughs> I mean, obviously, I would love, I always would love to see more new original stuff, but I think it is, you know, these are the kind of things that, that they are greenlighting. They work very inside the box in a lot of ways. And so, it, it, you know, I've, I've heard people complain about some of the quality of creativity with Hollywood writers, you know, some people that are grumpy about the strike, you know, oh, they can't, they don't even have any creativity. It's like, do you think that the writers all want to only be able to pitch stuff and write stuff that that has to do with existing intellectual property? That's not why anyone necessarily got into it. I, I think that people who work on these projects do a really great job in a lot of ways. You know, the, a lot of people, there's, there's a lot of fun and excitement even in these sequels and reboots, but I, I don't think the bulk of writers just want to work on that stuff. There's a report in the trade press that the studios want to break the screenwriters union deadline reported last week that the studios believe that by October, most writers will be running out of money after five months on the picket lines and no work. What was that quote about the studio's end game? The end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. And another person on the studio side called it a cruel but necessary evil. And they, it was later walked back. But for them to think that that's a good gambit to pull, to say like, oh, we're not going to stop until the writers are homeless, then we think we'll get a better deal. And you go, oh, well, that doesn't sound like a group of people that's that's especially motivated to to do any kind of fair deal. It seems like fairness is not even on the table for them. It seems that they're negotiating from a place of greed and cruelty. And all we're asking for is to have these sustainable livings. And their answer has truly, truly been, uh, screw you all, you'll sleep on the street. And And again, I don't know that there's even veracity to that they pretty quickly said no 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 no. they don't speak for us but this is how they're comfortable some executives are comfortable portraying their position as we're in this to hurt the people across the negotiating table because we want everything we believe it all belongs to us even though there's a, a group of thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people that actually do this work not just the writers and actors you know of course other creative professionals as well so I looked up the history of the 1960 strike, which was the last time that the actors and the writers were on strike together. And Ronald Reagan was president mm -hmm. of, of SAG. Famed the, radical leftist Ronald Reagan. <laughs> the key issue for both the actors and the writers in 1960 was very similar to what it is today. Residuals from a new medium. At that time, it was TV showing mm -hmm. old movies and TV doing reruns of their already existing shows. The actors and the writers also wanted a, a pension fund and a health plan that the studios would contribute to. In the end, uh, SAG had a four-week walkout against the film producers. TV was separate at that point, something that's changed. 
Uh, the actors got almost all of what they were after, a royalty system for films on TV and studio money for SEGs. It's kind of the beginning of the pension and, and, and health fund contributions from the studios. The writers took a lot longer. They struck against both movies and TV studios, and that strike ran for 155 days on the TV side and 147 days on the film side. That's five months Apparently, there were divisions within the Writers Guild at that point that don't exist anymore, but the writers ended up winning a lot of the same stuff, royalties for TV movies, contributions to the pension and health fund. I would say the biggest difference is that in 1960, unions were able to negotiate deals with individual studios and production mm -hmm. companies. Studios learned the lesson of that. They are, mm -hmm. you have a united front of, of negotiating and resisting at this, at this time. 1960, it was about residuals for the new medium of TV. 1980 was about the new medium of video, the cassette, uh, cassette sales. And, and now we have uh, streaming and AI. So every time it takes months and months of striking for writers and actors to, to, uh, to get paid for their work. And I think that's that's a really important point, because what happens is every time the technology changes, we have to win that jurisdiction in the contract, right? And we have to win fair terms in the contract, because every time there's a change in how our work is dis is distributed and the work of our colleagues is distributed they the studios think that they can put a stake in all of it and say that it's all their profit and so this is this is what's happening again right we're saying if you're you if if you're putting all your eggs in these streaming baskets you're not doing it because again you think streaming is a neat technology that you're investing in for for kicks you're doing it because you think this is the future of the industry and if you think this is where you're going to be making your money and if this is indeed where you're making your money and and people are coming to this these media this new media in the numbers that you claim they are and, and generating the revenue that you're telling the shareholders that uh that it is then we deserve our cut of it it's you know it, it's it's pretty straightforward the system that exists for tv and film wh where you can tell how much money something makes you can see how what the ratings are more or less you you can tell when something is re-aired but in in streaming it's everything is being re-aired every moment in perpetuity until it gets pulled down and they they're they give a very small fairly flat residual fee for that and it just is it's literally taking money away from writers actors yeah it's it's very unfair i know you've been on the picket line a lot lately where have you been and what's it like now it's it's a real big infusion of energy to have even more sag after members on the line than there were before. There were a ton of SAG after members coming out in solidarity with the Writers Guild strike even before last week. And I was just at 30 Rock and there were, it was a big turnout. We had uh, four different locations today. I think we'll have that through a lot of this week. And it's just big numbers, a lot of energy, a lot of chanting where uh, the last couple of weeks prior to SAG AFTRA calling their strike, We'd been at smaller locations, individual locations, trying to set up picket lines uh, at where product in the few places production was still happening and asking for the solidarity of their crews, which many crews 
had shown and shut down a lot of productions at great sacrifice to themselves. So that is something that is so appreciated, but the, the energy now is a little different because it's now about showing our numbers, making our voices heard, letting people on the street see us uh, and, and showing that we're not going away. They're not going away. Josh Gondelman, his new piece, Hollywood bosses are trying to scare striking workers into folding. They won't win. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, John. A pleasure speaking with you as always. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Russian President Vladimir Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine in 2022, it marked his latest attempt to brutally conquer the country and reshape the world order. Christopher Miller, the Ukraine correspondent for the Financial Times and the foremost journalist covering the country, was there on the ground when the first Russian missiles struck and troops stormed over the border. In his new book, The War Came to Us, Miller combines his personal experiences of over a decade reporting in Ukraine with vivid frontline dispatches and illuminating interviews with unforgettable characters to create a breathtaking exploration of Ukraine's past, present, and future and a heartbreaking account of the war against Russia. The War Came to Us is available now from Bloomsbury Continuum. Order your copy wherever books are sold.